you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. It's page 836. In your pew Bible, if you want to take notes in your sermon guidebook, on page 10, and there's a blank page for you on page 12. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you um, for the permanence of your word and your kingdom, Lord. All else fades like grass, but your kingdom is forever. Let us feel that firm bedrock under our feet, even as everything else like a rushing river is swept away, Lord. Let us feel your permanence, God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. During my senior year of high school, a lot of my friends were getting gifts. These were gifts celebrating the accomplishment of making it through school, which is no small accomplishment. And some of these were really nice gifts, like cars. There's nothing wrong if you gave your kid a car for the senior year, or you got one, but I noticed some of my friends were getting cars. And so when graduation rolled around for me, my parents gave me a Bible. And it had my initials on the front of it. And it was a nice gift. But honestly, at that time, comparing it to my best friend's red Mustang, it was a little disappointing. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, and I was nearing the end of college. And for reasons unknown to me, God had awakened me to a lot of things at the end of college. He had awakened me to a longing I had for purpose and meaning. He awakened me to questions about life and death. And in all this, I had come to put my faith, to throw my whole life in with Jesus Christ. And during that time, that Bible had come to mean the whole world to me. And if you would have offered me the, the keys of your Mustang for that Bible, I never would have given it to you, and I still wouldn't. You know, sometimes we don't realize the gift we've been given. Sometimes it takes a long time to fully receive and unwrap and recognize a gift we've been given. It can sit on the shelf for years and you can have no idea what it actually means. Sometimes it takes a long time to recognize the real meaning and significance of a gift we've been given. Today we arrive at some of the most significant verses in the Bible. They are the very first words of Jesus' public ministry. They occur in John, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And in them, Jesus summarizes why he's come. And twice in this section, we hear the word gospel, which means good news. Mark says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God. I love that phrase at the end of verse 14. The good news of God or God's good news. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The whole thing, the whole lot 
all of it is right here. And for some of you, you've received this gift, the gospel of God, a long time ago. And to you, I would say, there is still so much more for you to unpack. You will spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of the fact that God Almighty gave his only son so you could live forever with God. You will spend forever unwrapping that. So to you, I would say there's so much more. For others here, you have never received this gift. You have almost no interest in it. It has no allure to you at all. The gospel of God, the good news of God. And to you, I would say almost the same thing. There is so much here to receive. There's so much more to unpack. And it could be that by God's grace, for the first time, surprisingly, your heart will start to show an interest in the fact that God's Son is proclaiming to you the good news of God. But for all of us, it is simply a fact with this gift, the gift of God's Son proclaiming the good news of God, which is the great gift. With this gift, there is still so much to be unwrapped, to be received, to be enjoyed. So the word gospel means good news. It appears twice in our passage. And I want to ask with you this morning, what is so good about it? Why is the gospel of God, the good news of God's reign, as Jesus says, why is it good? A place to start, perhaps a strange place to start, is actually not with what Jesus says. It's not with the what of the passage, but it's with the when and where. It's with the setting. Both Mark and Jesus seem to stress something about the setting, or you might say the timing of this passage. So verse 14, Mark doesn't just immediately tell us that Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. He says, after John was arrested, it's a time marker, okay? After John was arrested, and then he tells us Jesus came into Galilee. This is the setting. And then Jesus, in verse 15, before he says anything about the kingdom of God, he says something about time. Do you see it there? In verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled. Well, who cares what time it is? The first thing we need to notice about this passage, or about why the gospel is good news, has to do with its relation to time. Or you might say God's reign and control over time. Hundreds of years before Jesus appears in Galilee, there was a prophecy from God through the prophet Isaiah saying that this would happen, that Jesus would arrive in this exact place, Galilee, at this exact time. I'm going to read this. This is, this is Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2. We read this a lot at Christmas. I want you to think about it in the context of Jesus' ministry. We read, this is Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, Notice the gospel's coming to someone in anguish. In the former time, here comes the subject of time, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee 
of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The prophecy is about one coming, God in the flesh, who is like a light in darkness, that's Jesus. The prophecy says this will happen in Galilee, that's why Mark says Jesus came into Galilee. But notice, the prophecy says there's a former time and then there's a new time. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's linking what he's doing into God's unfolding plan with time. Now what this signals for us the way Jesus would have thought about time is the turning of two ages. There was an age that essentially began with Abraham and it culminates with John the Baptist. It's an age of promise. God makes promises to his people Israel and through them to all humanity. He's promising, I'm making a covenant. I'm gonna build you into a nation of many families from the earth. Eventually I will put my spirit in you and change your heart. So, so people are waiting for this. With John the Baptist, that age culminates. No more promises. With Jesus, a new age of fulfillment begins. Jesus marks the beginning of God fulfilling his promises. Paul says all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. We don't need to wait for another Messiah to come. Jesus triggers the unfolding or rushing in of God's fulfillment to his promises. So he's promised that he'd return to dwell with his people. With Jesus, he has. He promised Abraham a family of many nations. Through Jesus' body, the church, he's making just that. He promised his spirit. Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist said in Mark 1.8. So there is the spirit. Now there's overlap between these two ages. If you think about a, a freshwater river running towards the ocean, and the ocean begins to push back up into that freshwater river, there's a point where even though you're going to the ocean, these two rivers commingle, right? There's salt water, there's fresh water, there's creatures from the sea with creatures from fresh water. There's something like that going on between the two ages. But the season of fulfillment is rushing in and we're surely heading towards it. Now, what I wanna do is simply step back and ask why this focus on time? Is there something to this we're meant to see about the gospel of the kingdom of God? Human beings have a strange, even a fraught relationship with time. Uh, C.S. Lewis says in a letter, do fish complain of the sea being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures. Notice how we, per, we are perpetually surprised at time. In heaven's name, why? Unless indeed there is something in us which is not temporal. Every kingdom, empire, nation, or state, no matter how powerful or strong and benevolent, exist under the tyranny of time. And time always wins. And time, because of the unknowability of what time will bring, always releases a type of anxiety in a kingdom. And time, because it carries all our sons and daughters away, releases a type of despair in every kingdom. 
And so what's interesting is as the good news is arriving, and it's as though Jesus is saying, God, in his sovereign hands, one of the things he holds is a clock. He wants us to see a very different relationship between this kingdom and time. All throughout Jesus' ministry, there's signals that this kingdom is not under time, but it's over time. It's as though time's relationship to God is like the relationship between a story and an author. An author writes out the story. He writes, he or she writes out the time. They're not under it. They're in fact using it to create their story. So notice these timestamps all around the gospel. Paul says, referring to Jesus's incarnation, that it happened, Jesus was born at the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. 4. Jesus says his ministry begins when the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.14. Jesus says his death will not happen a single hour before it is foreordained, John 7.30. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus says the return of the Son of Man will happen at an exact hour that God already knows. Concerning the day or the hour of that return, no one knows but only the Father. Now, lest we should think that all this means is that God is kind of a wise vacation planner. Like, just like us, he, he, he knows the seasons and he's like, well, I'm going to plan my trip to Florida in winter, not summer. Like, he just watches for a good timing and then when it happens, he goes, quick, Jesus, get incarnate. Come on. It's the right time. That, that wouldn't be someone over time. Because he would have to wait on time. And Peter, in a sermon in Acts 4, he kind of cleans this up to say it's not just that Jesus is going to crucify at the right hour. It's saying that God is orchestrating over this all the events. Notice what Peter says in Acts 4. He's speaking to God now, although he's speaking in front of his Jewish contemporaries. He says, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, historical figures, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, notice, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is a mystery to us, how it is that God reigns over time. But for God to be God, he is a being that exists outside of time. He creates time. No time elapsed for God between your birth and right now. He sees you in 500 years. And what he's doing in your life right now is according to these wise, perfect purposes, not according to the happenstance and randomness of time. Now, what does this mean for us? Why is this important? for the gospel to be good news. Because at some point, you need to know, I need to know that, that I am in a kingdom that is not simply out of control under the random events of time. And so what you have in the kingdom of God is you have the sovereign hands of God over and underneath what is unfolding. This means the events of your life, they're not random. Nor are they under the tyranny simply of evil or negligent actors. Rather, they're all unfolding according to a plan. Listen to the psalmist. This is David. 
in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David also says, in a moment of great anxiety in Psalm 31, verse 15, when his kingdom feels utterly out of control, he doesn't know what will come the next day. He says to the Lord, my times are in your hand. Jesus can present a sovereign care for us only because his kingdom exists outside of time. Never settle for the idea of total comfort in a kingdom, nation, state, or people that's under the tyranny of time. The second thing this does, along with giving us a sense of rest under God's control, is it actually gives us hope of permanence. It's like I I, I was talking to a brother um, earlier before the morning service, and I, you know, an older gentleman, I just came up to me and I looked into his eyes and I thought to myself, We will know each other forever. I don't know what's going to pass in the next few decades. You know, uh, Paul says when Christians die, they're asleep. But he's never going away. We will always know each other. And so in a world where honestly everything else is passing away. I mean, the buildings that made Rome, they've crumbled to the ground. And they were glorious. The people that made up Rome... Augustus and Julius, Caesars, they, they, they have passed away. And so what the kingdom of God does is it, is it looks at this rushing river of time as we age, as things change, as we lose things in people. And it just, it just falls through our fingers, this rushing river of time. And it says beneath the rushing river of time is a great riverbed written in the heart of God that is forever and it's permanent. And so in the kingdom, which has arrived now, the people, the personalities, the stories, the songs, the memories, these things are permanent. They will never go away. Your friends in this church who you love, in Christ, they're forever. That's the first thing I think we should pay attention to when Jesus begins proclaiming the gospel of God by, in a sense, grabbing time in his hand and saying, what I wanted to happen up till now is fulfilled and picking up the future in his hand and saying, now what I want to happen between now and my coming will be fulfilled because I reign over time. That's the first thing. We notice all that just from the setting, the timing of the passage. I want to ask another question now, and if you're following along and you agree with this, I mean, you might not. You might be, this ridiculous idea. God doesn't exist outside time. No one can control time. It's too confusing. I mean, you might just not agree. Um, But if you do, a second question arises, and that's this. Okay. God's in control of time. He's guiding the events of my life. My days are all written in his book before one comes to pass. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean my life is a good story. How do I know I'm on the right side of God's kingdom? You know, people talk about, man, you want to be on the right side of history. Let me tell you what you want to be on the right side of. The kingdom that's going to last forever. How do you know? How do you know you're in a right standing? You can be comfortable and rest in this kingdom. And that question takes us to what Jesus proclaims when he talks about 
the kingdom of God being at hand, repenting and believing in the gospel. Now, this word gospel that Jesus uses, it, it's inherently connected to the kingdom in the passage. I don't know if you can see that. But Mark says Jesus arrived proclaiming the gospel of God and Jesus immediately says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel kind of is a sandwich with the kingdom in the middle. And so the gospel of God synonymous with the, you can think of it this way, with the good news of the arrival of the reign of God. So there's a connection between gospel and kingdom. And we don't often see this today because we think the word gospel basically means like a religious book in the Bible or a spiritual idea. But in, when Mark's writing this, when Jesus is saying this, the gospel had a very concrete, even a political, militaristic notion. So when, when a great leader was born or a great victory was won, often there'd be inscriptions made throughout the Roman kingdom announcing um, a gospel, good news. So-and-so's in authority now, therefore, you can expect the kingdom's gonna go better. There's gonna be peace. Let me just read you one. This is very interesting. This is an inscription that was found in the ancient Greek city of Prien, which is just south of Ephesus. This was written about a decade before the birth of Jesus. I think this will shock you when you hear how similar the language is to how Mark talks about Jesus. Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set things in the most perfect order by giving us Augustus, first Roman emperor, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news or the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. So Mark, John Mark, who's writing the gospel, writing in Rome, the capital of this empire, when he opens his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there were inscriptions around saying the beginning of the good news of Augustus, you couldn't miss the comparison. Mark is asking us to compare two kingdoms. And essentially we would say, we're to compare the kingdoms made by men and the kingdom of God. And it's interesting to think about how do people become members of Caesar's kingdom or the kingdoms that men make? How do, you, how do you get on the right side of the kingdom of man? Well, Caesar, he spread his kingdom by the sword. You know that. In one instance, it's recorded that Julius Caesar sold the entire population of a conquered region in Gaul to slave dealers on the spot. Louis XIV, who reigned 72 years, had emblazoned on his canons the phrase, the final rationale of the king. In other words, bend the knee or else. Why, what's your reason? This canon is all the reason I need. I met with... Uh, Last week, got to spend some time with the Archbishop of Egypt. And um, we were talking in my office and he was asking about the history of our church. I was telling him, you know, our church goes back to the 1730s. And then I started to realize, well, his church goes back to Moses. <laughs> and you just can't get older than this, really. And so I was asking, what is it like to 
what's it like to pastor in such an, you know, the pyramid is such an ancient context. And he was telling me a story, just the makeup of his country. He's in Cairo about a time in, in the country's past when, when a people had come in and, and they had come in with a different religion and they were very powerful and they came in with a sword. And he said, essentially, they set this in front of the people. They said, you have three options. Either convert, pay a tax that you can't afford, or die. A lot of the movements over time in the kingdoms of men have advanced by the sword. They're kingdoms of fear. And I think even for us, sometimes the way we think about God's kingdom can be this way. I mean, it's a little, it's a little more, it's more subtle, but I think when we think about our place in God's kingdom, it happens under a more subtle sword you might call performance or self-worth. So you think, you know, I'm as in with God as I've been good in the last week. But, but I need to keep this performance up or I do not have a place here. Or I'm in with this kingdom with God if I'm worthy enough. Those are swords and they hang over you and they say, perform or get out. That, that's not how Jesus' kingdom that he announces will advance. Jesus' kingdom is not by the sword, it's by the cross. The most decisive victory Jesus will win for inaugurating the kingdom of God happens on the cross. You really can't understand the kingdom unless you view it from the lens of the cross. And on the cross, ironically, Jesus is fighting the actual enemies that no one else can fight. Sin, death, Satan. And on the cross, what Jesus does for those who will draw into his kingdom is, is he pays a ransom for us. He pays our debt. You know, we have a debt. If you're a human being, you're like one big debt. I know you don't think that way, but... The way the Bible understands life is a gift from God to be stewarded. And all of us essentially have totally squandered Eden. You're like, well, I didn't do anything with Eden. You are a patch of Eden, <laughs> your life. And, and we have essentially perpetually not honored God as God. And we've done a million other things. And this is where the sense of guilt we have. You know, you feel it in our culture. It's like, how do I get rid of my guilt or the guilt about this culture, the guilt people, th th people the things people have done? And, and you work your guilt out, right? You atone for your own sins. Can I be good enough? Can I do enough justice? Can I not sin enough to atone for my sins? That creates a kingdom of self-performance, competition, and anxiety and power. Jesus comes along and he says, I've paid for all that. I've paid it. You have no debt. You have no guilt. It almost doesn't seem right, but that's the gospel. And what this says is that God's kingdom advances not by the threat of the sword, but by the grace of the cross. So his banner over you, if you've come into his kingdom, is love, not fear. And this means that all you need to qualify you for the kingdom of God is to be a sinner. <laughs> we think to qualify for that great kingdom, I've got to have my acts together. It's the opposite. Jesus said, I came for the sick. I have come not for the righteous, but for sinners. Your sin qualifies you for this kingdom. It doesn't mean the kingdom doesn't take it seriously. It just redirects its sting onto Jesus. And so 
Grace is stronger than our works. The cross is stronger than the sword and love is stronger than fear. And so your, your position in this kingdom is something that God has done for you finally and fully and his banner over your, you is grace and he holds you with his love. God's kingdom advances not by coercion, not to make mercenaries, but by grace and love because he's making sons and daughters. God's kingdom advances as a lovesick lover pursues the bride he loves. And so we're brought into the kingdom because while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in that then Jesus died for us. And so the kingdom Jesus brings, it reigns over time and then it pulls people into its eternal hallways and courtrooms and gardens by grace. And grace gives us a far more restful, wonderful place to stand. That's the gospel of God. Let me ask finally how we should respond. Um, what I like about this passage is Jesus gives us two commands for response, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the end of verse 15. And then Mark illustrates it with the calling of the first two disciples, excuse me, the first four disciples. So if you want to know which, what do you need to do if you're hearing this for the first time or what do you need to do if you're hearing it for the millionth time? This is a good reminder. The way to respond to the gospel is what I would call faithful discipleship. Repent and believe it's really two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning away from sin and idolatry, false loves. Faith is turning towards. You turn away from sin, you turn towards God. Simple, take that coin home with you. That's the way you respond to the gospel. Now we might think that when you become a Christian, you believe in an idea, even an ideology. It's like, well, I've, I like Christianity because by it I make the most sense of the world. Or you might think, I believe in Christianity because I think it can do so much good for the world or good for my life. That's not what you're believing in. You're not believing in something. You're believing in someone. Notice what the four disciples, Peter, Simon, James, and John, notice what they respond to. They respond to the Nazarene. They respond to Jesus. And he calls them and they follow him. And so responding to the gospel, it's not, a, it's not about believing in an idea or an institution. It's not about believing, or excuse me, it's not about even making a decision, although it involves that. It is about a life commitment of discipleship, of saying, yes, Lord, I believe, and I'm all in, and I'm going to follow you. And now let me circle back to where we began, because these ideas come together here. I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes it, it takes a long time to unwrap and realize a gift you've been given or to realize its goodness. This is what discipleship is. You know, a lot of people think faith is kind of, you know, you're in the room of unbelief and then you walk through a door into the room of belief and that's it. You're just in a different room. It's way more than that. Faith in Jesus is more like being given a violin. Here, it's a violin. Now you get to learn how to play it. And the more you work at it, the more beautiful it becomes. It's just that the violin is you. Jesus says, you've never lived until you lived with me. 
I am going to teach you how to play the song that is your life. And it will be beautiful. You're going to have to work at it. Faith every day, repentance every day, part of the church community, learning the craft that is living by faith. The disciples had to learn it. But they got the violin immediately. But they've spent their lives learning how to play it. In the gospel, God gives you you because he loves you and you're beautiful and he wants you to be played for eternity because that's how the maker gets the glory from that which he has made. This is the gospel of God, the eternal kingdom, the grace of the cross and the gift of ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of God And I pray, Lord, that it would penetrate more deeply into our hearts and that in the afternoon ahead and in the week ahead, Jesus, help us unwrap it even further. We pray this in your name. Amen.